Hi, this is Toka U.S. Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Ida Sargent. Ida has represented the United States 159 times in World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic Winter Games. She has 59 individual top 30 finishes, including nine top 10s. Her best finish was a third place in the Pre-Olympic World Cup Classic Sprint in Pyeongchang. Additionally, Ida finished third twice in World Cup Team Sprints. Ida, a two-time Olympian, won the U.S. National Championship Classic Sprint in 2019. Ida is retired or retired after the 2019 season and is 32 years old. She lives in Kirby, Vermont and teaches at Burke Mountain Academy. Ida is clearly one of the most successful ski racers we have ever had in this country. It's a pleasure to have you with me, Ida. It's nice to see you. I haven't seen you in over a year, I guess. Yeah, it probably has been that long. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure, of course. So we're, I guess we're having internet problems. The power went out in Vermont and there are internet connections problems. Is that accurate? Yep. Okay, so in case we lose the video or something, that's what's going on. So can you please tell me where you grew up and how you started ski racing? Um, I grew up, so now I live in Kirby, Vermont, which is, or East Burke, Vermont. Um, and I think I grew up about 30 minutes away um, near Crassbury, Vermont, which is probably a place better known by Nordic skiers. And my whole family skied, so it was just something we did as a family, kind of pretty similar to probably most Nordic skiers there, not, not anything that um, different. I had two older siblings, just was trying to keep up with them, going out with family things. Um, but it was probably after uh, I started skiing with the Crassbury Nordic Ski Club and skiing with other kids that I really fell in love with, love with the sport, um, skied in the Bill Coke Youth Ski League all the way until I was um, an older racer and could ski or an older junior and could ski with the New England Junior National Team and progress from there. Was Craftsbury your home club or did you kind of move up to Craftsbury when you were 12 or 14 or something? Uh, no, Craftsbury was my home club at the time. It was pretty small. Um, there was probably just a handful of us. Our parents kind of ran the club um, and got, got it going. It was um, myself, my older sister, Elsa, who was a NCAA All-American, um, Hannah and Emily Dreisiacker, who both went to um, the Olympics for biathlon, and their younger brother, Ethan, and a few other families in the area. So it was pretty small at the time, but um, a great place to a great place to ski. Small but successful, obviously. Yeah. So how did you do as a junior racer? Um, I was a good junior racer. I think I had the advantage of being a younger sibling, so I could just kind of try to keep up with my sister who was two years older than um, me and probably was uh, a very annoying little sister at times, but she put it up with me and um, supported me. And I think being the youngest sibling was an advantage there, just trying to keep up with the older kids, uh, helped me get a lot faster. And I loved racing and um, had fun with that aspect. So, and you ski for Dartmouth and in your generation, you have to be pretty darn fast to ski for Dartmouth. You, you had an incredible uh, team. So that's kind of what yeah. I was asking because it seems to me you had to be really fast as a junior in order to be on that team. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Um, they, I, they, they, Dartmouth won NCAAs the year before I matriculated as a student there. So that was some big shoes to fill 
right there and um, had a lot of depth, but that made us all faster. So um, I think I've always tried to surround myself with faster people and um, learn from them and uh, grow with them. And that's been, was really productive in my career. So a lot of faster athletes to ski with. When you were in college, who were some of your, I'm sorry, when you were in college, who were some of your, um, let's say faster teammates or teammates that you trained with the most? Um, I mean, we were a small team, so we all trained together. Everyone that was on the Dartmouth team. When I first got on, on the team, um, well, I was in the same class as Rosie Brennan. Um, and we had Hannah Dreisiacker was a year older than us. And my sister Elsa and Susan Dunkley were a few years older. So um, there were a lot of class people on the team already. And then right afterwards, Sophie Caldwell was the year behind Rosie and I, um, Erica Flowers, Annie Hart, Izzy Caldwell, and lots of others. So really, really fast group. Yeah. And, and once you left Dartmouth, you went to the Green Racing Project. You also had an extremely fast team there. That's kind of what yeah, I was, it was Especially with all those, the biathletes, um, Claire Egan, along with Susan and Emily and Hannah that I already mentioned, and Caitlin Patterson, Caitlin Miller. Um, we've always had some strong women's teams there. And of course, just if you train with fast people and believe that you can um, do what they're doing on day in and day out, then you know you can keep up with them on the race trails in the winter too. Yeah. So when you graduated from Dartmouth, you went to Green Racing Project. I guess that was kind of the obvious choice because you lived in the area, you grew up skiing for Craftsbury. Um, did you have experience with Peppa before you went to Dartmouth? Peppa was my coach from when she arrived in um, the U.S. or arrived in Vermont in Craftsbury. Was, I was about nine years old. And so she was my coach from when I was, or maybe even younger, might have been like seven or eight, from seven or eight until I retired from ski racing last year. So we have a really long and great relationship. So, so it was an obvious choice. It was a no-brainer. Yeah, exactly. And it was close to home, close to where my parents lived. For sure. Can you say what it is about the Green Racing Project that works so well for you, as well as can you please comment on Peppa and your relationship and what a great coach he was for you? Yeah, I mean, anytime you have a coach that knows you so well and cares about um, cares about you so well, so much and believes in you. And just, I think, yeah, just knowing that your coach believes in you a hundred percent, um, believes that you can reach your goals. It's, um, that's pretty amazing support system to have in, as an athlete and to know all the ins and outs. And, um, Peppa is just so hardworking and, um, lives and breathes coaching. And so I could, have that extra layer of confidence knowing that she had put everything she possibly could into um, the training and making sure that myself as well as my teammates were really as prepared as we possibly could for the season. Um, she was constantly looking for the latest research and um, come trying to figure out what was going to be that thing that could give us, give us the edge that winter. So from your comments, as well as some other people's comments and my observation of Peppa, I would say her strengths are that she's super motivated. She fights all day for her athletes. She's loyal. She's really um, informed as, uh, as pertains to physiology and, and the latest information. She makes an effort to stay current. Um, she's creative. Um, is there anything I'm missing, an aspect of PEP that I'm missing? 
No, I think that's all. That's quite a few adjectives you just listed there. I don't know how many it is, but yeah, it's, it's a good list. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. I guess a lot of coaches have, you know, ex-athletes who are um, really grateful and, and so on. But I think Peppa's maybe unique in the enthusiasm that she has from pretty much everyone who's worked under her. They're all, I, numerous people have said they think that she's the best coach in the world, at least for them. Um, I mean, if you've ever heard, if you're speaking to the enthusiasm, if you've ever heard Peppa cheering on the side of a race course sometime, you can't, can't really match that. It's hard, or it's hard to match that enthusiasm. Just you can tell she's fighting just as hard as you are out there, just putting all of that, um, trying any way she possibly can at that point to make you go just a little bit faster. But And what could be more motiv- motivating than that than having a coach that is so enthusiastic about what you're doing and believes in you so much? I imagine you never had to look for motivation because how could you not be motivated, huh? Exactly. Yeah, cool. And they're still t- always easy to be unmotivated, but she, she definitely helps you out right there. So the Green Racing Project commonly gives its athletes jobs. For example, uh, Akio Maifeld Karuchi was tasked with improving the efficiency of the heating of the buildings. When you were with the Green Racing Project, did you have a craft spray job? And if so, what was it? <laughs> I always liked working with the kids, um, the ski programs have just grown immensely. Um, we started with doing just these little um, Bill Coke camps, Bill Coke leagues camps and day camps that were maybe 10 kids when the GRP first started. And then now it's by a few years later, they were selling out um, by the time they've, they were immediately put online. Um, and just the junior program has grown immensely there and so it's really fun to be able to be a part of that especially knowing that I had grown up in the area and gone through that program and so I can kind of give back to the community and um, one of my former teammates when I was on was a when I was a kid was Anna Schultz who's now the head of that program and she's grown it from a pretty small club to a program that helps get a couple hundred kids on skis every winter so um, being able to give back to that is something that I still love to do and um, makes my day to go to over to Crasper and see that many kids out on skis on any given day in the wintertime. Absolutely. So when I, years ago, before the USSA kind of encouraged clubs, kind of a club-based system, people would graduate from college and then flounder training on their own, perhaps counseling with some kind of coach over the phone and then hopefully eventually make their way into the national team and go to camps and such. Things have changed dramatically since then. Um, I think that your situation at Crasbury was uh, perfect. So you were able to graduate from college and I think maybe you were, were you at Crasbury in the summers at all before? before Yeah, I mean, I was, because I was training with Peppa from when Um, earlier on and so I would come back and train with her in the summer and then the yeah. the GRP started when I was I think a junior in college. Yeah so you graduate from college and you had no difficult transition period there you just slotted back into this elite team at Crossway with incredible mm-hmm. teammates and and uh, world-class coaching and I wanted to know your your thoughts. Uh, clearly it's I mean everyone knows it's beneficial to train with a really competitive training group but if you look at the kind of the, the timeline of U.S. skiing, even 
25 years ago or less, someone would graduate from college and there was really nothing for them to do except for go out on these long workouts by themselves. Have, and now and then they go to a training camp, but there was really nothing. And I really think that the results that some of many of the results that we're enjoying today are a result of this club-based system that we switched to and having such strong regional clubs that they can grab athletes out of college, in your case, before college, and get them to the level quickly with a strong training group. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a nice, I think it's also really nice. For, I was already, when I was on the GRP, I was already on the national team as well. Um, so it wasn't really trying to make that transition, but it was nice to be able to be at home um, and train with a program that I knew that I was um, comfortable with and just be at home settled um, and not be on the road all the time since as a national team athlete, we're on the road all winter long. It's nice to be at home one place for at least part of the year, even if it's only a few months and not quite um, fully calling it at home. Yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned earlier, you've had, you've had 159 World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic starts, which is a lot. Out of, those are including relays, team events, et cetera. 59 individual top 30 finishes and nine individual top 10 finishes. This is an amazing career. When was it when you first realized that you had the ability to compete with the best in the world? Um, I don't know if there was like a specific moment, but you kind of working your way up. I was just, um, I had gone to world juniors, had had some good races at world juniors in the past and, um, I think that it's just kind of being able to believe in yourself and know that if you set that as a goal and you keep making progress towards that goal, then that's possible. Um, I'm not sure I can think of like one specific moment because I think we're always looking for more, even if we're, um, pretty close to being there already. Okay. The Kusumu World Cup in Finland has been the opening World Cup for many years now, traditionally. Against the strongest possible field, Kusumu always has a huge, super strong field, you finished fifth, seventh, and ninth in the classic sprints there, which is historically probably your best event. Was there something special about that course or the early season timing that inspired you to such great finishes there? I think it was definitely the course. Um, my One of my strengths as a skier was striding, especially steep striding. Um, and the hill in Ruka is, or Ruka is the ski area near Kusumo. Um, Ruka is one of, it's definitely the biggest on a sprint course. Um, and it's also very steep. Um, and yeah, just being able to put my head down and run up the hill was a strength that I had. And um, so that course really matched my, matched my style there. I think every year when I would go there, I'd kind of even having gone quite a few times, the first time I got to the stadium, I'd always be amazed by how big the hill was, even though I'd skied it so many times. I can't think of any other sprint courses, much less classic sprint courses that have an uphill finish, like it's a long uphill and then a flat to the finish. seems mm -hmm. like more they have the, the uphill in the middle and there's a downhill double pole to the finish. Can yeah. you think, is there another uphill finish sprint course you can think of? Um, Drummond's an uphill finish. 
Yeah, for sure it is. Yeah. Um, most of the, I mean, most people double pull most of it, that uphill finish and drum, depending on the conditions. But, but I mean, you're, you seem to be really strong at an uphill striding finish, you know, where everyone gets exhausted going to the finish, you know, as compared to, you know, a high speed double pull drag finish. Exactly. It appears to be your, one of your strengths. So I was trying to think of there's another course in the World Cup that would kind of match Ruka's profile that would give you an advantageous finish for your strengths. I can't think of one. I can't. I can't think of one. There might have been some in Italy that we've gone to, just for one year, one time or something. But I can't. It seems like usually the stadium is either in the middle or the bottom, and you yeah. go out and then you climb and you come back down into the stadium. Mm -hmm. So that that is a pretty unique course, huh? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so with that fifth place, for example, in Ruka, was that your first, I think that was your first like really big eye opener finish or did you have other top results before that? I think I had been sixth before in a skate sprint. Oh, cool. Do you have a favorite race that you've ever done a day that brought especially great emotion or memories? I'm sure you've got plenty of course. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. Um, the podium in Pyeongchang, um, in the, the pre-Olympic World Cups, those were, those were big. Um, Please tell us about it. Well, give us a little, uh, you know, hero, hero story, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, it was pretty cool going there and the, they actually, they were still figuring stuff out for the Olympics. They actually had the lights on so, um, so brightly that it was too, too bright for the TV cameras, I guess. And um, even though we were racing at night, you still had to wear sunglasses on because the lights were so strong. Um, and again, there they have that course had big uphills and fast downhills, which is um, another thing that I love. Um, so it was a course that suited me really well. And um, I think we were kind of struggling to find kick and glide. So on that day, so I just kind of went for glide and found a little line where I could um, run up the outside, um, out of the tracks and just happened to work, um, on that day to, so, um, pretty special to always to be on the podium. Um, so that was obviously a very memorable one, but, um, another memorable one I think I could come up with would be the first time, um, or our first more impressive finish as a women's team when before we were on the podium, um, but we were fifth in a relay in Nova Mesto one year, maybe 2000, I don't know, 2012, maybe. Um, but we'd all had a horrible day in the individual the day before. Everyone was pretty um, dejected and disappointed, but we were able to band together and um, have our first World Cup race where we or strong finish as a team in a four by five K. Um, so that one was, it was just the rebound effect, knowing that we were gritty and persistent as a team and get yeah, finished fifth in like a photo finish for fourth or, um, but even though we lost the photo finish, we were just so excited to be there. And I can remember being in the finish area and we were cheering and celebrating so much that the Norwegians who had won the race started taking pictures of us and, um, they were surprised because they, it was just another day for them, but for us, it was a pretty big day. So when I look back now in my career, it's more of those moments with the team, um, that really matter to me, whether it was my teammates in Grassbury or 
my teammates on the US team. That's cool. That's awesome. You skied your first World Cup in 2010 and your last World Cup in 2019. You, you have a, the reason I'm bringing the dates up is you have a perspective that, um, that is kind of historic. In 2010, despite Keegan Randall's success, she had four top tens, including a second place in 2010. The US women were so far out, I couldn't find a Nations Cup ranking. They, they, were, they weren't on the list, you know, they stopped. You all had less than 531 points and you were in the top 10, I, I couldn't find a ranking. When you retired in 2019, the US women were ranked fourth in the world with an impressive 2,501 Nations Cup points. You were obviously a great part of this amazing transformation. Can you talk about that, please? You yeah, that's um, pretty cool to think about that. Um, yeah, it's just kind of appreciating each other, knowing that we all had strengths and being ready to work with each other we, um, and support each other. And we really just made it, a, made it our mission to be a team and to be the best teammates that we possibly could. And um, like I mentioned before, if you know your teammate can do it, um, if Keegan could have done it, and she was like telling us, yeah, you guys can do it too. And we were training with Keegan at camps. Um, so if you can um, put in the same training that Keegan's doing, and um, then you're getting closer to that and just keep lifting each other up to try to get to, so if everyone gets brought up to Keegan's level and then Keegan makes another jump or somebody else makes another jump and then we all get up to that level um, and continuing to believe in ourselves. I guess that's just kind of a long, a rambling answer, but it's really just believing in the team. And it was really fun to, um, to celebrate. At first it was celebrating top 30s and then top 20s and then podiums um, and celebrating all those little successes along the way at whatever speed they come at. I've got kind of a nerdy question for you, but I feel like I kind of have to ask it based on your question there, your answer there. Um, they say skiers are made in the summer. Champions are made in the summer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ask you about the, 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 the transformation of the team over this nine or 10 year period. And you talk about more or less belief in one another. And it sounds like you're more or less talking about the national team athletes. I know you had training camps, but more or less, I think you're talking about the winter season. I'm wondering how much of your progress and development occurred in the summer in Craftsbury as compared to in the winter on the World Cup? Well, even on the, in the summer, I was still going to um, camps with the national team. So yeah. we would do three to four camps uh, during the, the training year and then in the winter. And I think it would be pretty hard to quantify one time versus the other um because it's all also dependent and like you're saying they are we are built in the summer and so we can put in that hard work either together or separately with our clubs um and then come together and support each other from far and support each other um when we're together one thing like we still as a our u.s women's team we still have a a text chain that we're constantly communicating with so it wasn't just like we would show up at training camp having not talked um, for the past three weeks or a month or however long it had been since the last training camp. We were trying to support each other all the time just because, you know, being a skier is a, a full-time 24-7 job. So bottom line is, even in the summer when you're in Craftsbury between U.S. ski team camps, 
the other national team girls were definitely pulling you up and you were pulling them up and there was a very strong solidarity and, and strengthening experience even if you weren't in the same geographic location. Exactly, yeah. Um, and that was with my with my Grassbury teammates as well, but um, also with the national team and supporting each other through, you got to support each other through the thick and the thin and the boring days when you're just going out and showing up and the, the more glorious days as well um, in the winter. And yeah, a lot of my fondest memories, like I said, are just doing things with the team, whether that was like living together at Bend Camp or um, at another training camp or something along on the road. It's not always just, there's a lot of work that goes in to those magical race days. And for every magical race day, there's a bunch of less magical race days. And so you kind of have to appreciate all of the moments in between um, or else it's going to be a, a long haul. I believe that most of those moments you're talking about are got had to be there moments. But would you like yep. to share some kind of anecdote from one of your training camps that you look back at fondly that didn't have much to do with skiing, but had more to do with uh, apartment living, you know, at training camp or on the road in the winter that that kind of makes you laugh and kind of epitomizes your experience at the U.S. women's team? Um, I mean, if you can remember that poster, that first poster we made with the yellow jackets, the one that said on a mission. Um, and I look back at that um, poster and beneath our like four smiles, I can remember how cold we were and kind of can see like, we're all like a little bit just like chilled because it was freezing cold and we were doing it early in the morning. Um, but we were there together and it's that kind of thing where you're kind of bonding together to make the most of whatever it might be when you're stuck on the side of the road with a van that broke down or um, yeah, having an amazing day skiing through powder somewhere. So. More or less just solidarity. Like exactly. Either, solidarity either. through the good days and solidarity through the bad days. And if you can support each other and celebrate the successes along the way and dream big, it was, um, there was no, there wasn't any like secret formula that, allowed us to get better as a group. It was just working together and putting in the time um, day in and day out and just really believing in each other. For sure, misery loves company, but uh, celebrating wins and, and small wins also uh, breeds good friendships and good feelings between each other. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about Craftsbury a second. You grew up near Craftsbury and you've skied on those awesome trails your whole life. Um, I think that the trails are pretty much the same, except they've been widened. But for the most part, they're more or less the same trails. Can you talk about the transformation of the outdoor center over the years from your perspective? Yeah, it's it's amazing. And, you, and I've seen most of the transformation, so it's not like going back and seeing this huge difference. I've kind of been there for all of the stages. But even recently, um, they just paved a roller ski track, which is great because you can get lots of kids off the roads and um, other people off the roads and it's fun to ski. And that's actually the only time I've gone roller skiing this year was one time to test out the loop. Um, the last time I was over in Craftsbury, but um, Dick Dreisiacker and Judy Gear have put amazing um, amounts of effort and time and resources into that. And it's just 
the things that make the biggest difference. I mean, the trails are wider and the lodge is nicer and there's snowmaking and some of those things that are necessary for um, skiing and uh, racing now. But um, to me, the biggest difference is seeing that there are a couple hundred kids that are involved in different programs from after school programs to more competitive race programs there. Uh, so to be able to see all of those kids in an area that's um, not, it's very rural, um, a poor socioeconomic overall rural area, and you're just getting as many kids out, equal opportunity for everyone to get out and be able to try skiing and have the opportunities to, um, to go with the sport wherever they want to. I haven't skied the loop yet. I've seen some footage of it, but um, in addition to getting people off the road and away from cars, one other advantage traditionally of a roller ski loop is you can have transitions that are, that you wouldn't want to have driving a car because they're too abrupt, you mm -hmm. know, but you love them skiing. Does it have some pretty good transition in it, which, you know. Yeah, it's kind helps. of like the sprint course plus part of the um the normal loop that they use for snowmaking so yeah it does have those more turns and um uphills and things like that super yeah so when you were a top athlete skiing over the same trails that you skied on when you were a kid i imagine the contrast of how much easier skiing the hills and distances became as you got older and stronger came to light more than a few times was there any one instance where that became especially aware to you? Um, I don't know if anything ever comes easier. I think you just can push yourself harder so you can, you might go faster, but you're still like, probably as you get an older athlete, you be able to um, run a more elite athlete, you're able to push yourself a little harder. So I don't know if it actually gets easier, but um, I think having skied there so much, um, it was really fun to be able to, it for the few years that um, come home and finish the season um, with Super Tour Finals there. And uh, I got to race U.S. Nationals there one year when I came home for Christmas. Um, and there were definitely times in those races when I'd be getting pretty tired or feeling myself bogging down on a hill and just reminding myself, like, how many times have you skied up this hill? Um, it's not that big of a hill. You can, like, you just know the trails so well. Um, so that definitely played a role in having success when I did get the opportunity to race there. So Ida, when I think about you as an athlete, I think about you accelerating in the transitions and attacking the course. You ski very aggressively and also dynamically. Where did this come from? Is it just your nature? Yeah, I mean, I think um, having grown up on skis, I feel really comfortable um, skiing transition, skiing corners, and um, grew up like playing on skis. So it's, uh, I like downhills a lot. So it was like fun to try to gain a little ground there. I feel like you have to work really hard to get a little bit of extra time on an uphill, but you can ski a corner a little bit more aggressively and easily pick up a few seconds there. But um, I'm sure it's, yeah, some combination of being comfortable on skis and just my nature. I think I've always one that goes all in, 100% um, focus and what I'm doing currently. Um, so that uh, for sure played itself out on the ski course as well. You know how um, 
Liz Guinea, but, but also, for example, Sophie, if you watch them, even in a sprint race, they don't look like they're going that fast, even if they're going really fast. You always look like you're going fast. There's a, di there's a difference. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, Sophie's like the best glider in the world. So she's about as smooth and um, graceful and glides more than anyone else. So, yeah, I was not um, following suit in there. It was always fun to ski behind her. But um, I want, another of my strengths was just um, having a high tempo and being pretty strong for a small person. And so um, I think I tried to use those and just – um, would ski with a very high tempo. I love to jump skate and on uphills and run uphills. And um, yeah, I think the, the more hilly and technical the course, the more that I liked it because I could just kind of put my head down and go. I think you, in, especially in classic, you were able to affect a change of pace that was really dramatic, more, better than almost everyone in the World Cup. Would you agree with that? That's a strength of you. Yeah, I think like I have a, I, that was just something that was always came pretty easily to me. It was just a fast, like um, powerful and quick turnover. So I could just start a fast tempo and um, accelerate quickly. And as someone who wasn't maybe the biggest and most powerful, um, I tried to usually play to my strengths on that type of um, terrain. Cause I knew that if it came to like, a big powerful downhill finish or something that was going to be a tougher one for me. So um, I tried to work, work my, my own strengths instead. In training. I mean, obviously you, I'm sure you were doing um, ski bounding and, and such to develop uh, a short, powerful kick, but are there any other things that you did specifically to, to attain such a, a good change of pace in, in classic, you had pretty good power, short compact kick and you just had a real natural acceleration in your stride yeah um and I mean, we did a lot of especially we did a lot of speeds i felt really comfortable on skis i think too just mm. being able to feel comfortable in skis um is something that's just a huge asset and i don't know if there's one thing in training or it's just having done it for a long time and like you also said, maybe some of those things came naturally to me. Um, but I think I usually tried to play to my strengths and um, use those strengths as best as I could, um, knowing that, yeah, if I waited for a finishing kick, it might not be there as much. But if I tried to attack over the top of a hill or around a corner or something, that could be more where I could make a move. When I asked you about your favorite races, um, you mentioned the relay and you mentioned the third place individual classic sprint in Pyeongchang. One race you didn't mention was the 2019 classic sprint in Craftsbury in 2019. I have to think that was a special race for you. I believe it was your first national championship, but it was also in your home course. And you're, I think, winding down your career. I think at that point it was in your head, perhaps, that your, your career was winding down and, and you were able to win a national championship on your home course. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, it was, that was a really fun day. I mean, my mom was in the finish area. She was taking bibs off and I think my dad was 
somewhere out on course also volunteering because they they're always volunteering um at all of the races there so my parents were there um and being able to do it at home knowing that there are lots of kids and like people from the Crassbury community were out there um and to share that and that all of the people at Crassbury worked so hard to pull off an awesome week of racing um and to be able to support that um I think for me that was what made that day really special as as you said like I I at that point I had already decided that I was going to be done so it was nice to be able to um come home and uh have a good race there yeah cool especially yeah at home so I know you have an interest in coaching you mentioned that earlier in our talk and especially kids I think have you been able to coach yet or have you been too busy? Obviously you're super busy with your job. What would you like to be able to do in a perfect world? In terms of coaching or just in terms of, well, I was talking about coaching. Yeah. Like if you, if it was, a perfect uh, yeah, world, I love working. Time. I like working with kids like I've mentioned in the past. Um, and I think I would prefer to coach at that level than coaching elite athletes. Um, there I've been there before and I know how, how needy and high maintenance elite athletes are. So um, probably myself included more than others. So um, I, yeah, I don't really have any interest in doing that, but um, it's fun to get kids out and share the love of skiing with them. I was able to help out at some of the Crassberg or a few Crassberg practices throughout the winter last year when I had a little time, um, which was fun to get back and, ski with some of those local kids um last summer the two summers ago i guess now i coached at the u16 national um camp the that the u.s ski team hosts and um nnf and that was also a blast like that's a really fun age group of kids who are kind of starting to make that jump and get a little more serious about skiing and have those opportunities um open up to them so Perhaps in the future, I'll get more involved in that level, but it's also been kind of nice to take a bit of a break um, from the ski racing world and to have weekends where I can go out and ski and on my own or um, go up on the mountain and do something, a different type of skiing and that type of thing after having done the sport for so many years in such a structured role. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'm, uh, I've been the Toko Glove uh, designer from the beginning. I'm curious if you could please share what your favorite Toko glove model is and why. Probably the toasty mitts. Um, I have very, very cold hands. So um, anything that's warm, but I like how the toasty mitts are pretty flexible as well. And you can, um, but also really warm. So it's easy to hold a pole, um, feel the, feel the pole in your hand. And um, yeah but also have nice toasty fingers because that's always hard for me. Sure. There was a while uh, you were giving me some really strong positive feedback about the convertible gloves, which is a classic with the shell that pops out over it. Are you, because the flexibility it offers, is that a glove that you're still excited about? Or now that we have the toasty thermal mittens, are you pretty much gone? I think, I use, I, think I use those ones a little more because they're even a little warmer. Um, but yeah, I like having the feel of being able to feel my um, poles and um, whenever I classic skiing, I'm always like pretty, really particular about my skis. Um, I think I have a good, and, or skating, I think I have a good feel of the snow. 
and being able to have a good feel of your equipment makes a big difference in that regard. Ida, if you were to do your ski career all over again, is there anything you might do differently, if anything? Um, I, I saw you sent that question and I was thinking about it. And to be honest, I just really like to, to live in the present and the future. Um, I think that, yeah, it's not something I've really thought about that much. I'm, I'm happy with my career and I'm proud of what I was able to accomplish and the relationships that I built during that time and um, the goals that I achieved. And I can look back and I'm sure there's like, there's always times when you're like, oh, maybe if I did this or I did that, something would change. But um, yeah, I was really happy with what I did and it was a great time and a, an amazing part of my life. And I'm also at the stage where, or I feel lucky also that I, left the sport um, at a time when I was ready to leave and it was ready to move on and ready for something new, um, which has made the transition really easy. Like I'm excited about a bunch of different sports that I'm able to and different activities I'm able to do. Um, and so, and there have been a few times I've thought back on it, but I'm more of the, the live in the present. For sure. Um, my motivation in asking that wasn't to necessarily drag, drag up, you know, negative thoughts or regret or something, but rather clearly you had a very successful, very positive experience. And I thought that people could learn a lot from you if you were to say, you know, yeah, maybe if I had, I don't know, done more strength workouts or maybe if I had, like, how about this? What did you think you did especially well in your career? Well, I see like and I'm not saying to looking back as like negative things. I think that the sport is constantly evolving and yeah. constantly changing. So looking back now, it would be easy to say like, oh, if I was more serious here or if I had traveled less here. But I think that the sport is just growing so quickly. Um, and I'm seeing like the level that some of our younger national team athletes are at is way beyond where I was, I believe, at that time. Um, and it's cool that they're able to like step it up and make that jump um, early on. And I mean, when we were, when I was a junior being top 10 was great. And now at world juniors, and now um, we're getting a lot of athletes on the podium and Gus won. And um, so it's kind of like, it's constantly evolving. And so I think it would be hard to look back and, and it's just also such a complex sport that for training, there's so many different things um, for what you can be doing. And yeah, I guess, I, I don't know. I, maybe I can think about it and get back to you, give you a, a second part of this of where I think come up with something, but I've kind of just been like. Um, Let me suggest something. I think that it could have been tempting for you to think about moving to Anchorage so you'd be in the same club and training with Keegan and Sadie, for example, and some other top athletes up there. I think that could have been a tempting thought. But one thing I think you did really, really smart was to stay close to your support network, stay close to home, stay close to the coach that has worked so well for you and your great training group. And, and I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I, I'm grateful that, that our country has developed such that we have multiple really strong pockets of 
of elite cross-country skiing programs. So that's an example of something I think you did really well from my perspective, but uh, did you ever think about going to APU? And do you imagine you're happy about having had stayed close to home throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, I thought not too seriously about it. <laughs> I guess, it, yeah, not really at all. Um, I mean, the idea came up, but yeah, it was, it was um, I was definitely going to be staying in New England, wherever that was going to be. Um, but I guess probably if there's one thing, it would maybe, and it, I have no idea whether this would have made me faster, but I think sometimes skiers get so tuned into a training plan. Um, and I think looking back that maybe I would have taken it just kind of freeformed a little bit more. And um, just, I think it's easy when you're skiing and you're all in um, to be pretty focused um, and just tried to do a little less structured training at times of the year. Um, would that have made me faster? I have no idea, but um, I think right now it makes me happy to not be doing a structured training plan. Would that have made me happy then? Maybe I wouldn't have found the same confidence or found confidence out of that at that time. So I don't know. I do sometimes look back and you think of like all of the little things that we think of that matter. And it's like, you're like, does that actually really matter? Um, who knows? But, um, but it also, those little things give you confidence in the moment as an athlete. So maybe that's, maybe they are good. Sure. But Ida, can you share something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Who are these people? That was the other, I, yeah, I wasn't sure who the people were because. Well, we, we've got over a thousand unique listeners to this point of this podcast. So those, those are the people I'm talking about. Okay. Um, getting my master's in public health currently. I think I which is, would like to do something with that. Um, what that is, I don't really know. Um, I don't know. I'm going to need, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Okay. Well, let's go to the next one. My last question for you would be, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Um, just <laughs> be here now. I think that the more you can be in the present, um, smiling, breathing, doing, doing what you can do to make this moment special. Um, I think that's going to have ripple effects into the future, um, hopefully for others, not just yourself. And yeah, just kind of embracing those opportunities as they come, but not, not stressing about it, um, but being in the moment. So being present is something that's been thrown around a lot in recent years, and I definitely recognize how important it is. I know quite a few people who struggle with it. In other words, they know it's important. And they want to do it, but somehow their thoughts go somewhere else. Do you have any tips on on staying present and living in the present, you know, and kind of being present for people? Yeah, I think for every, like, I mean, I find myself at times when I'm stressed about something like work or ski racing, if it was at the time, um, it's easy to be looking forward and um, just trying to channel, I think, in the later years of my career, I was actually really good at just channeling it back to the moment and trying to focus on that um, 
find ways to be grateful of that moment. And it's not easy to do and nobody's perfect. Anyone who thinks that they're like always in the moment is maybe trying to um, fake it a little bit. And I think if you can just kind of bring yourself back, back and then uh, when you are distracted from that. When I um, my kids were young, you know, we used to watch these, um, PBS type programs with them like Arthur and whatnot but there were some other ones um, that were educational and gave like life lessons and one of them was about this I think it was a kid who was so excited about the future that he wasn't living in the present and I, yeah. I kind of had that tendency myself so it really resonated with me and so the, it was basically um, the, the all-powerful being or whatever gave him uh, a, a remote control to his life and he was able to fast forward his life when he wanted to. And he ended up fast forwarding through years and years and years to everything that he was, every kind of milestone thing he was looking forward to. And there's an old man, he was looking back at his life with regret because he wasn't in, I think we all do that to a point, like, like what you're saying. And, yeah. and uh, ever since I saw that, it's been really first and yeah, foremost in my mind about something you have to kind of bring yourself back to. And it's easy to, I mean, we, when you're in the moment, you're always, even if you're in a very positive outlook, you still look excited about stuff. And so then you want to start thinking in the future. Um, but I think as a ski racer, the more that I could do that and just focus on this moment and doing everything I could at this moment. Um, and even if it wasn't going to be the winning combination on that day, at least then you can look back and know that at the time you did everything you could. Um, was it good enough to achieve all your goals? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but you can at least take that confidence that you've done everything you can and take that satisfaction. And it's, I mean, it's always like for all of us, it's a, it's a process of embracing it and um, not just, yeah, I don't think anyone's perfect with that. And as an athlete, there are definitely times when I was stressing about the future or the past, um, but the moments when I was definitely the happiest were when I was in the present. So it's kind of where I try to focus my energies now. Yeah. And I think if you're in the present, you're also more inspired, you know, mm -hmm. you get up for things and, and so on. Of course, I think life's yeah. better when you're in the present. Exactly. Well, Ida, this has been enjoyable. I hope uh, that our listeners also enjoyed as much as I did. Um, as I said before, I'll, I mean, I obviously followed your career. I supported you throughout your career. I was amazed at how many top finishes you had. 59 individual top 30s is remarkable, as well as a podium and, and nine top 10s. You had a heck of a career, and I salute you for it. And I thank you for um, being with us today. And, and I wish you well with your teaching career and the other um, endeavors that you're, that you're planning on doing. Great. Thank you very much, Ian. It's great to talk with you.